a lot of the hardest questions that we have in our life have already been answered many, 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 many times throughout history. It's just written in a language that we don't have access to or in a book that, you know, is out of print or is just not part of, you know, the common narrative that that we have. Welcome to Money Self-Made, a show where I speak with remarkable people about how to master your money and lead a remarkable life. Today's guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Grant Sabatier has been dubbed the millennial millionaire by CNBC after he went from $2.26 in his bank account to over a million dollars in five years, which I think is extremely impressive. But on top of that, he is the founder of millennialmoney.com, recently acquired by The Motley Fool. He's now the co-founder and CEO of bankbonus.com, and he's also the author of International Best Seller, Financial Freedom by Penguin Random House, which has been translated into eight languages and counting. I'm so thrilled to have him on the show. You will definitely learn something from this episode. Before we get started, please remember to smash that like button. I thank you ever so. And click subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. Without further ado, let's get started. Please help me welcome Grant. Do you want to kind of give the Grant in 30 to 90 seconds summary of your journey on financial independence and where you are today? Absolutely. Um, So I graduated college with a philosophy degree and bounced around a number of different jobs and never really kind of found the right fit. And so at 24, I ended up back home at my parents' house, completely broke, starting from scratch, like a lot of people and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life and just had no had no money. It was completely broke. And, and that was really where my financial journey started. And it was around this time that I first noticed that my parents had gotten a little bit older. And probably more surprisingly, a lot of the dreams that they had talked about wanting to accomplish growing up not only did they not accomplish them, but they no longer had those dreams. And so it made me think really about the value of time. And, you know, I was stressed about money and they were still stressed about money, even though, you know, they were in their late fifties at the time. And so I just thought about, you know, what had I been taught about money? And I wrote down a simple list. And the first thing on the list was that time is money and money is time. And I realized that that was the biggest myth of all, that time is actually so much more valuable than money and that I didn't want to spend the next, you know, 30 to 40 years just grinding away at a job that I didn't hate. And so I made the plan to try to make as much money as quickly as possible. And when I started researching this, what I found pretty quickly was that a lot of the personal finance world and investing world was set up to take people's money. It really wasn't designed to help you grow your money. And so I went down the rabbit hole and read a number of books and then ended up teaching myself how to run digital advertising campaigns and launched an agency and then a second agency. And over a five-year and three-month period, I saved over 82% of my income and that money continued to grow and I reached financial independence shortly after turning 30. So pretty much for five years, that's all I did and all I thought about and learned a lot in the process. So then I started sharing what I'd learned to help you know my friends and other people around me. And that turned into a book deal and a website and just speaking opportunities all over the world. And now I spend 
my life pretty leisurely. Wow, that is just extremely cool. Uh, I love that you're a philosophy major. I actually am in a writing group with Vicki Robin. I've heard you're a fan of, and I'm a big fan of Paula Pant as well. And I just noticed there's a lot of philosophy in the financial independence movement. Why do you think that correlation exists? Or did your background in philosophy maybe give you an edge in embracing this, this type of goal and lifestyle? Yeah, that's a really good question. So philosophy, I think, as it's traditionally taught at universities, is actually a pretty antiquated system. A lot of it is, you know, you're learning things from, you know, white guys who died a long time ago, which in reality, all they had done was taken Eastern philosophy ideas and changed the language and restructured them and taught, you know, Western philosophy as a whole as a discipline is actually kind of sad in a lot of ways. A lot of philosophy is built around this idea of sort of meaninglessness and, you know, life is nothing and, you know, just this life of the mind. But, you know, for me, what was really fascinating is it just kind of taught me how to think and question things and, really question just normal assumptions. And at the core of philosophy is, you know, what does it mean to to, to live a good life or to live a meaningful life? And so it, it really helped me to, you know, kind of see how stuck everyone was once I, once I was stuck. And then probably more importantly, uh, helped me realize just the limitations of thinking in general and kind of the Western mind. And that's a whole other topic of conversation. But, you know, a lot of my approach around money and a lot of, you know, Vicky's approach and, you know, it's, it's rooted in, in more of a sort of Eastern, Eastern philosophy as opposed to the West. I think in the West, we get really caught up in, uh, in our mind and, you know, we think ourselves into boxes and then we get super depressed and anxious and, and think that we have so much more control over life than we actually do. But yeah, certainly being a philosophy major uh, allowed me to think in, in slightly different ways. And then I also just fell in love with the idea of thinking in general, just writing. And, you know, I thought it'd be so cool if I could one day actually get paid to write and think and share what I was seeing in the world. And, you know, outside of being sort of a philosophy professor, you know, the way to do that is is to, you know, through more popular mediums like podcasts and books and blogs. And so once I started sharing what I was thinking, it was actually cool because I started to grow a lot just in how people reacted to it and what they shared, you know, back towards me. I absolutely love that. I mean, I kind of want to double click on the idea of thinking limitations. Can you just expand upon that a little bit? The idea is very intriguing to me. Anything in life that, you know, we're experiencing has often, you know, already been experienced before. And every thought that we have has probably been thought a million times before. And the way that life is sort of structured is that these ideas that have existed for a long time are constantly being reborn in every moment. And so the things that I write about and share about money, you know, have been written about before, they've been talked about before. And it's interesting because just existence has this way of continually making things relevant again through new voices and new people. It's like, even though something's been said forever, unless it's said in a certain way that's lo- you know, localized to the time that you're in, people just really don't pay attention to it. In fact, a lot of the hardest questions that we have in our life have already been answered many, 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 many times throughout history. It's just written in a language that we don't have access to or in a book that you know, is out of print or is just not part of you know, the common narrative that, that we have, for example, in the United States. And so a lot of us just get trapped in our own mind. We feel like we're going through 
uh, an experience where we're entirely alone, where we have a feeling that no one else has ever had or that there's not ways to to deal with or handle. And I think in America, this sort of self-reliance narrative, you know, just that the country is founded on is this idea that you should figure it out for yourself and be self-reliant. And, you know, that, especially in increasingly uncertain times, is an immense burden to put on someone's shoulders. Life is hard. We all know that. It's challenging. And when you try to do it all yourself, not only is it exhausting, but you're forced to kind of reinvent the wheel. And so an important thing is to recognize that your mind is, is it's not your worst enemy, but it's certainly often not helping you in the sense of, you know, whether it's being greedy or chasing after something that someone else has, or, you know, there's certain limitations to the human mind that often we get caught up in. And so it's kind of a, an interesting topic. It's like mo- moving past your mind or through the kind of the edge of your thinking and moving more into your intuition. And so a lot of us, especially in the West, we just kind of don't trust ourselves And, you know, a lot of people, they reach out to me and they're like, you know, Grant, I feel really stuck at my job or in a relationship or, you know, in my life. And, you know, what should I do? And the first thing, it's just like, well, you know, you feel stuck because you are. Follow that. You know, it's sort of like our our bodies and our hearts and and other parts of, of ourselves are giving us hints constantly about the directions that we should move in. And so many of us just because we learned something a certain way or our parents told us something or we were taught something, we just get trapped in our mind and then, you know, wonder why we feel bad or stuck or pigeonholed. And I think at, that's, that's a lot of the root of why people feel, you know, depressed or stuck or anxious in their life. And if you can move beyond your thinking and realize that oftentimes your mind's just holding you back in some way, it can be incredibly freeing, but easier said than done. That's profound and really spot on, I believe. So, and speaking of being stuck, I mean, that must've been how you felt at this rock bottom moment. And I can relate as a millennial, I graduated right in the middle of the recession. I had big dreams for my life that were quickly altered by money has to be my main priority until I have enough to not worry about it anymore. So when did that kind of like switch and that light go off and how did you stay motivated through that five years and what was your journey like? Because I took a lot of wrong directions. It's easy to get like lured into the scams of the internet, promising millions. How did you find like the real way and path forward in that? So, you know, at the age of 24, I had sort of so much fear of uncertainty, so much, you know, I was, I was, I was running away from something more than I was running towards something at that point. You know, I was running away from disappointing my parents and feeling like I wasn't making the most of my life and wondering that I wasn't, you know, worrying that I wasn't going to make the most of, of this, this, this one life that I was kind of just didn't want to be broke. You know, I, I didn't want to be stressed out about money. That's kind of what I was running from more than I was running towards anything. I mean, I set kind of the very generic goal of trying to save a million dollars as quickly as possible, just because I thought, you know, a million dollars seemed like a lot of money and it was close to enough money that I would need. And when you're completely broke and have a negative net worth, it's, you know, a million dollars is a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money at any, any time, but, you know, certainly then. And so I, it was just pure sort of hunger and desire and will, but motivation like that only lasts so long, you know, before you get tired or distracted. One of the things that I realized was 
in order to make this happen, I was going to have to live my life very differently than the people around me, than my friends, than my parents, because they were living life a certain way and they were getting a certain result that I started to get really excited about just trying something incredibly different. You know, so at this point, you know, I'd read Your Money, Your Life by Vicki Robin. There were a couple of blogs out there, you know, this is 2010, but really financial independence, you know, or the fire movement, you know, none of that really existed. It was, it was just, you know, a couple of people creating on the internet. So it wasn't, it was like two and a half years before I even found someone else online that was writing and talking about this. So I was kind of at it alone. And that actually gave me a lot of motivation because I could see how other people were living and see how I was living and see the impact that that was having on my life. And what I mean by that is, you know, I don't call myself a minimalist, for example, but naturally because I was spending my time working and trying to make money, I started valuing money in a way that I just didn't spend nearly as much of it as I used to. And one of the pretty quickly you know, once I'd saved, you know, even 25 or $50,000, I just started to feel less stressed about money. You know, I started to feel more in control of it. I started to feel like I was figuring this thing out. Like I'd figured out just, just a different way to live that gave me more options. And that was incredibly empowering. And then kind of like a game, once I saw my net worth starting to grow, you know, that became, you know, addicting in, in its own way. And I wanted to see it keep growing. And I saw uh, just the early stages of compounding. And it's just, it's so mind boggling when you're first starting to, to imagine just how quickly your money can actually grow when your money is making money. But once you start seeing the hints of that, you know, it really, it, it kind of takes off. And then you're like, why would I ever buy anything ever again? So for me, it was a lot of those factors. And then I just started getting you know, I started seeing how much progress I was making and how quickly I could potentially save a million dollars once it started really adding up. And then once I started, you know, side hustling and launching, uh, you know, a few side businesses and making a little extra money on my own terms, that's when things really changed for me because then it was like, geez, you know, the sky's really the limit here. That for me was just a, a huge mindset shift. And then, yeah, I, I, I accomplished the goal quite quite a bit faster than I thought I would. I thought it might take me 10 or 15 years. And then, you know, about three years in, I was like, whoa, okay, you know, you can, can, can really make this happen. And then on the flip side, the harder thing was, uh, you know, choosing to, to leave my company and then, you know, become, become a, you know, a full-time sort of creator and sharing this mission. You know, there was, there was an immense amount of sort of uncertainty and fear wrapped up in that. But, you know, it's like anything in life. If, if you open to it and, you know, you just, you just pay attention to how things make you feel and realize that not everything is going to be sunshine and rainbows. I think we often chase happiness too quickly. You know, there's just an immense amount of growth within uncertainty. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's fun. And then once, you know, I'd saved a million dollars, it was like, wow, that was crazy. And I want to share everything that I've learned. I completely hear you on that one. Once you realize you can buy more money with your money. There's no buying stuff anymore, at least on that's what happened to me. And I, I was surprised as well, how quickly we achieved financial independence after discovering the fire movement. That was the the key for me. And I am curious, one, if you had to start from ground zero today and you just from nothing had to remake that million dollars, how would you go about doing it? And two, what were the most profitable endeavors for your time? So what were the most profitable businesses, side hustles, or day jobs that you were yeah, I mean, the first one, you know, and I, I talk about this in my book, you know, I think you have to start 
with where you're currently making money and make sure you optimize that first. So I see a lot of people making the mistake where they'll start a side hustle, either they'll invest a lot of money in it, or they'll put an irrational amount of time while they have this full-time job that they hate, that they haven't negotiated or raised for. I mean, you just see the numbers now. I mean, it's sort of playing out. I wrote about this, you know, now five years ago. It's just the power dynamic between the employer and the employee has shifted where the employer used to have all the power. And now the employee has a lot more power because there's so many open jobs and, you know, not that many people to fill them. And so a lot of people really underestimate their value to their company. And so just starting with, you know, negotiating your full-time job, building a new skill set, thinking very intentionally about how you want to build your career. Even if you're not planning to work for 30 or 40 years, you know, we spend more time planning a vacation than we do mapping out the next job we want or looking at how much money we could make with the next job. And so I always encourage people just start with your job and optimize it first. And then side hustling. I mean, I think a lot of people just, you know, it, it, this is like a lot of things in life. It's, it, it's important to look at how someone lives and use their blueprint. And then what happens is they're trying to live someone else's life as opposed to their own. You know, life's all about sort of assimilating information and ideas and bringing them into your own life and thinking critically about how you want to use those to, to live your life. And so when it comes to side hustling, you know, a lot of people just see something online and they're like, I'm going to do that or I'm going to do this without asking the simple question is that interesting? Does that seem like fun? Are you going to learn anything? Does it have any potential? How can you do something different than someone else? I mean, that's, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you know, I I can tell you that if you don't really feel like you have something to say, then no one's going to pay attention. And that comes to being a creator, being a writer, you know, for me, it's like, you know, I, I've been writing for a long time, but I never felt like I had anything to share. You know, I wasn't posting on social media. I wasn't, you know, blogging until I finally thought that I had something to say. And so I also think that people should create less content. I think that people should focus on, you know, building skill sets and actually picking out their moment and using their time uh, more wisely. And that comes down to anything in life, but especially business. And you also have to be prepared just to fail for a while. And I think a lot of people just fail and they give up or they fail and then they spend a lot of money on some blueprint that they think is going to work. The thing about business is everything naturally gets very competitive very quickly. And so if you can find something that you enjoy, that you have a unique talent at, that, that just those two things give you a leg up because if you're not making any money, which you probably won't for a while, you're going to at least enjoy the process and enjoy learning. And then, you know, on the flip side, it's going to help you keep going when, when things actually get hard. And I see this in the money space all the time, you know, becoming a personal finance blogger, you know, can be incredibly profitable, but it, it takes 3000 hours of writing before you can make $50 a month. You know, I mean, the barrier to entry is actually, yeah, you can launch a website quickly, but to make money doing it is extremely, extremely hard. And so people either drop off too early or, or, or they don't even really care about money. They just want to make money. And that happens, you know, all the time. So just focus on doing something that you enjoy and use it to, to build connections to, you know, this is the other thing. It's like, Find someone who's done what you've done and try to work with them as opposed to starting just from scratch, you know, and your other third part of the question 
the most profitable side hustles for me were ones that I could figure out very quickly what value was I actually selling? What value was I actually creating? Because this is the thing about any business. If you're doing the same thing as someone else, you're ultimately the only way that you're going to be able to compete is on, you know, price or offering, you know, some, something more. And so just the simple dynamics of how do businesses compete and how do people compete? You know, I realized that if you can sell the same thing as someone else, but sell it to someone with a lot of money, the chances that you can make more money are a lot higher. And so that was one of the things a lot of people in the digital marketing space, they take on every client, they, they're burnt out, they're just trying to do everything at once. And it's like, no, often niching down is very important. Figure out an industry that has a lot of money that you can become an expert in and work in that industry specifically and build up specific expertise in that business and then use that expertise to be able to justify, you know, higher prices and, and, and all of that. So, you know, I talk a lot in my book about value and the perception of the value that you're creating. And if you can create a high perceived value even if you're doing the same thing, the amount of money uh, and the amount of success and, and, and just how much money you can make per hour, you know, increases significantly. That's why I just look at an attorney, a general attorney who can charge, you know, $100 or $150 an hour, you know, is, is able to make significantly less money than someone who specializes in, you know, mergers and acquisitions or advises companies in, in acquisitions because the skill set and the outcome, the fact that a business is going to be able to acquire a business from that type of transaction, it increases the value of, you know, the advice or of the service. And so, you know, I was building websites just like everyone else was, but I could do it quicker and I had a particular level of expertise, you know, in a number of different niches. And then I knew when to get out. This is the important thing in business too. Far too many people hang on too long. Yes, it takes a little while to be successful, but once you are successful, most things just naturally in life, the nature of, of, of anything, you know, thermodynamics, that they decay, they decline over time. So any business is going to fail eventually. Anything that you create is going to be less relevant over time. And so realize when something hits, the, the clock's ticking. You know, you have five years, you have maybe seven years. I see far too many people just, you know, hang on and hold on too long. So for me, I knew exactly kind of when to get out of the digital marketing business. I knew exactly when to sell my website. I knew, you know, exactly kind of when to to write a book on this particular topic. So timing is extremely, extremely important, which is something, you know, it's very hard to kind of teach, but it's something that's easier to pick up on if you're interested in the topic and you spend a lot of time working in a particular field. That's fascinating. I had no idea you were so strategic about timing, but that makes a lot of sense. And that's a great segue into one of my big questions for you is selling a business. You've sold two now, is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Amazing. Very cool. Yes, it's something it's a dream of mine to do someday. I know it sounds like it's a roller coaster on all levels. What would you recommend in terms of going about finding a buyer, prepping your business to be sold? Any tips or advice uh, you can give would be tremendous. Yeah, I actually, I, I love this topic so much. I'm thinking about writing something on it specifically. I never kind of wanted to write a business book, but I do believe now after having sold two businesses that you know, creating and scaling and selling a business, you know, is one of the fastest paths to financial independence. And so I think a lot of people don't create businesses to sell or they don't set them up 
you know, in a way that, that they could easily be sold. And so, you know, I'm kind of interested in, in perhaps creating something, you know, around this topic, but no, those are good questions. I think the first one is the more intentional that you can be about how you set up your business. If you want to sell or you think you could want to sell and everyone should probably be thinking about this, just, just the better off you're going to be. And there's a really great new book uh, by this guy, John, his last name starts with a W it's called built to sell. It just came out uh, earlier this year of all the books that I've read. It presents, you know, it's funny because I actually, uh, after selling two businesses, that's when I decided to read all the books on how to sell your business. Not, not beforehand uh, for some reason. Um, And that book does it was i mean it wasn't out when i sold my companies but it does a really good job of distilling kind of the process of how to structure your business in terms of keeping it lean and thinking about multiples and valuations i mean at the core of creating and selling any business is how do you create something of value that someone's going to want and one of the easiest ways to do that just from the beginning is setting up systems that aren't reliant on you and so creating actual systems, you know, workflows, processes that, you know, you can literally write them down. Here's how I do this thing. And here's how this works. And here's how this is set up, you know, and having those sort of SOPs, they call them, you know, the standard operating procedures that you can literally, when you sell your business, you can hand them over and say, here's how everything runs. And then oftentimes when you sell a business, you know, they'll pay you a nice amount of money. For, for a certain period of time to make sure that those standard operating procedures are, you know, integrated within their business. But, you know, for someone just starting out that hasn't done this before, the, the advice would be just kind of document what you're doing and work hard at trying to build something that you have a little guide for, even if it's just a Google doc that you write down how you do things that you could hand over if someone offered you $10 million for your business tomorrow and that's something that you will find. The hardest thing to do is if someone comes knocking on your door and they say, hey, you know, I'm interested in your business or would you sell your website and you don't have anything. The same thing goes with your financials. You know, use FreshBooks or QuickBooks from the beginning of the creation of your business. Have a separate LSC where you have just a business credit card and a business checking account. Um, there's two things that you can sell. You can sell a company or you can sell the, an asset. You know, you can sell an LLC or, you know, an S corp, or you can sell a website or you can sell, you know, both combined. What's really popular now is that businesses, they just want to acquire the asset. So like when I sold millennial money, I didn't sell my LLC. I just sold millennialmoney.com and all that, that, you know, was created. And so setting up the assets, asset itself to be easy to acquire and make sure that your books are really clean because whenever you sell any business, the they're going to want to do uh, due diligence, you know, they're going to want to, you're going to have to open up your entire life. And so the more that you've kept track of, and the cleaner that you've done it, and the easier it is to show here's how much money I made, here's how much money I was spending here, are my expenses, here's my profit, here's how much money I, you know, I made each year, here's how it's grown, the better chance, you know, that, that you're actually going to going to close that sale. There's a lot of people, no matter what kind of business that are interested in acquiring companies, and then they ask for those things. And when people don't have them, you know, the, the, the deal falls through. There's so many things, so many moving pieces to, to get a deal from someone being interested to it actually, you know, closing. But a lot of it is done through that, you know, due diligence process. So be open, be transparent, make sure that you're keeping track of your finances and you're keeping, 
you know, everything separate. And then on the flip side, you have to spend time figuring out what your business is worth and what, you know, even before you start, if you're interested in creating a business to sell, sell, figure out what the multiples are. And you can just Google this, like how much do consulting firms get sold for? How much do websites get sold for? How much do, you know, SaaS companies get sold for? And you can actually see that certain types of businesses are much more valuable than others from an acquisition standpoint. So, you know, a lot of people start these consulting companies, these service company businesses, but a lot of those, because they're so dependent upon the people that run them, you know, are only valued, you know, maybe one to three times, you know, annual revenue. Whereas something like a website that makes, you know, money and affiliate revenue, it's it's going to be valued between five and 10, maybe 12 times annual revenue. Whereas like a software company, you know, you create a software company, like an email provider, you know, like a convert kit or, you know, Basecamp or, you know, Asana, any of these tools where there's monthly recurring revenue built in, it's a software, it's kind of hands off, all the tech support is through tickets, you know, those can be valued 25, 30, 40, 50 X, you know, those are software companies are extremely valuable. So if you want to build a business to sell, look into it. I see a lot of people that do consulting or build agencies with the hope that they can sell them. Consulting companies, agency businesses are actually kind of terrible businesses to launch, to, to sell uh, they're kind of good businesses if you want to keep them small and and you know build a lifestyle company where you know you can you can just kind of fit it into your life. But in terms of selling them, they're actually really quite terrible. And I le- I learned that going through that process, where selling a website, you know, is is much more scalable, much easier to pass on to someone else. But it's pretty wild, especially you know. The past five years, you know, because if you have a business and you hold it for longer than a year, you know, you can sell it with cap gains, you know, and so it gets taxed less. So that significantly adds to, to, to the profit that you can make. And I've recently launched another business that, that I'm growing with the exact intention to sell sell now that I've, you know, gone through this process twice. And it's a lot simpler the third time, at least structuring it to be best positioned to you know sell in the future. Is that another website or are you trying out the SaaS this time? No, no. I launched a website, bankbonus.com. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things I found with Millennial Money, you know, Millennial Money was a broader personal finance website, was that a huge portion of people search for bank promotions and bank account bonuses. And a lot of the websites in that space were are kind of old school. They haven't been redesigned. I want to mainstream the the bank bank bonus space. But you know, with that being said, with a team of four people not taking any outside capital, you know, I have quite a few people that wanted to invest in this new project, but I've never never taken on outside investment. I think a lot of people take on outside money uh, way too quickly. And and if you can build it yourself and not take on any money, I always recommend going that route because whenever you take money, just the responsibilities that come with that. I actually should, a great book on this topic is, topic is called Lost and Founder uh, by Rand Fishkin. Yeah, which is really incredible. You know, he wrote about growing his company Moz and, you know, basically taking on so much money, kind of ruined it for him. But yeah, I feel like I'm talking in, in very sort of esoteric terms because we're not getting into the details of these things. But yeah, I launched a, a new website bank bonus uh, from scratch. You know, it's different launching a website from scratch now than it was five years ago. So I'm having a lot of fun. It's amazing just how fun it is, you know, getting back into WordPress and building something and, you know, creating, you know, API calls and, and just kind of digging into the weeds. I'm actually happiest when I'm 
growing things. So I, I enjoy the process of building things much, much more than I than I do scaling them without a doubt. Yes, I definitely hear you on that one. Do you think, I mean, I'm happy to dig into the weeds too. I have questions about flipping domains and all of that stuff because I like building websites as well. So how, like, how do you think it is different building this website now versus five years ago? Has the terrain changed a lot? Yeah. So first off, domains are a lot more expensive. So I bought, you know, millennial money for like, you know, two grand in a domain auction almost like eight, nine years ago. Whereas like, you know, bankbonus.com, I paid, you know, 17,500 for it, you know? So obviously like inflation, but premium domains have really, really, really gone up in value. So that's one difference. And, And I see a lot of people that still kind of complain about putting up the money for a premium domain, but if you're building a website, that is the single most important thing in, in the whole entire pro. Like that's where you want to splurge is is on the domain name. Always get the .com. Always get the exact one that you want. Hunt it down. If you can't find it, change the name of what you're trying to do, and then buy all the domains around the related topic. So not only did I buy bankbonus.com, but I tracked down the owner of bankbonuses.com. Like so many of the related ones. Now they all redirect because I wanted to minimize the potential competition. So I, I mean, I spent, you know, probably 40 grand on domains just at the outset, uh, thinking through all the different, and that's going to be really valuable on the flip side. Hopefully when I sell it, you know, for the acquirer, because I'll have all those, you know, related domain with it. The other thing that's just different is content is just increasingly a commodity. And so, you know, obviously you can go out and find, you know, writers at different sort of per word amounts, but, you know, we're quickly moving already, you know, at the forefront of, you know, SEO and and, and search to just almost fully automated content creation. Machines are just getting really, really good at building content. So a lot of the content that, that I'm creating is created by a machine and then edited by humans as opposed to the other way around. And so that's pretty wild because you can, you can figure out, you know, kind of what, what, what do people actually care about this particular topic? And then, you know, you can use machines to learn, you know, very quickly. I think that makes, you know, launching a website extremely difficult, especially, you know, I, I don't really recommend you know, creating a personal finance website and and hoping to make money just because it's so competitive. And so here I am like going into banking, the most like second most competitive after credit cards, you know, and trying to launch a site. So that's kind of fun too, because it is so hard and is so competitive. And then, yeah, you just got to move faster than the other people. And this is the other thing too. A lot of the big companies out there that yes, they have a lot more money than you and more resources, but that allows them to to waste a lot of money as well as, often the bigger company, the slower they move. And so for me, I launched Bank Bonus, you know, March 17th, and we already have 194 posts on the site. So this is like three months in, you know, I've got writers humming, I've got editors humming, both to catch up where I'm behind and to distance myself from sort of the, you know, the the amateur content creators. And so one of the things I found just biggest takeaways in life and in business is that often there are really large companies up here and amateurs down here and a ton of money can be made in this middle space where you know you're you're smarter and more intentional and move faster than the amateur but you don't have all of the overhead of the big company and this is just a vast space 
where a lot, you know, you can make a lot of money and be, and be, and be successful in anything that you want to do. And I think a lot of people want to get too big too quickly. And then I think a lot of people, you know, they just stay small, you know, for, for, for a lot of different reasons, but, you know, in terms of building websites, yeah, you just want to, if you can find that middle. Absolutely. That's so smart. Like, how do you hire writers? How do you outsource? Please tell me more about this insane machine writing thing you're doing. That's really cool. Most of the writers that I use now, uh, I use for millennial money. So, you know, I found them, you know, three, four, five years ago. And, you know, a lot of freelance writers I found just have to, you know, they're always kind of looking for the highest per word rate and they end up jumping from company to company. And then it's kind of a feast or famine space where you can make a lot of money when you got a good client, but then that client changes their business model or their budgets freeze and you got to move over here. And so from the beginning, I promised the writers that worked with me, it's like, Hey, you know, you can work with anyone, you know, here's what I'll pay. I'll guarantee this amount of content for the next two years. You know, it's something like you can rely on this. And so one of the things I found is, and yes, I increased the per word rate, you know, over time, just like giving anyone sort of a bonus or an increase, you know, it's just like, if you treat people well, and you're loyal to them, they're more likely to be loyal to you. There's just a lot of turnover in the writer space on both sides from the client and from the creator side. And so I wanted to forge relationships where, uh, you know, people would stick with me and be dependable. And so, you know, of the seven writers that I work with now, five of them I've been working with, you know, for over four years. And so they know me, they know, and that creates an immense amount of not only loyalty, but efficiency as well. So they can work quickly. They know what we want. And, uh, you know, the best thing that you can get is, is people who even sort of anticipate your needs. So now I have writers who are like, oh, you know, I was working on this post and I saw this other thing that, you know, I noticed that in search on the site that you don't have a post about it. Do you want me to write one about that too? And so now I have the writers not only writing and creating, they're actually recommending topics because they're, they're on the ground, you know, writing about this stuff. When you find good people in, in, in anything that you're doing, try to hold on to them as much as you can, not from an exploitative, try to get the most work out of them from a life is a lot better when you're working with people that you like uh, and, and that you know are good and good people are hard to find. And so I, I attribute a lot of my success in business simply to the people that I've been able to hire and find and, and surround myself with. And there's an immense amount of economies of scale that, that can happen with that. And I think a lot of the big companies don't think that way. They're just, you know, churning through writers and churning through people and they view writers as, you know, just a commodity. And then smaller bloggers, creators just often don't take the time to build relationships or invest a little money in, in you know, that was, that was a tough thing too, starting to invest my own money in content creation when I wasn't making any money. And so obviously in creating online content that, you know, the writers and the quality of the content is really, really kind of, kind of everything. And so loyalty has been big there. Um, and then also just developing systems like, you know, I'm a huge fan of Asana. Uh, you know, I've been using it for a long time, just building out workflows that the team understands. And so new content ideas get added and those get assigned to writers and the writers know where to put the content and know what we expect. And then the editors go in and edit the content and then it gets posted and then it gets, I mean, it's a, it's a well, well humming machine that even when I sold millennial money, I was able to just take that existing machine and recreate it 
and plug it in, just reset it up. You know, it took me like maybe like eight hours or something to reset up all the tasks and subtasks and the whole template. And then you can just press play on a new site. And that it's just, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. With that being said, it's like, there's always new tools. There's always new systems. There's always new things you have to kind of keep an eye on and try to learn from. But this goes back to that point about everything's kind of always getting more competitive and always decaying. You know, my wife is really busy with her job and it takes a lot of her time. We don't have any kids yet. So it's one of these things where it's like, I just have an immense amount of time and I want to stay interested and engaged. And, you know, I want something I can do, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week. And so I want to use my skill sets as well as just capitalize on what I see to be this opportunity. But but the clock's ticking. You know, I, I really think that, you know, I've got like a two or three year window for this, just in terms of the opportunity, as well as just where I'm at in my life. And so, you know, a lot of people, I think, over plan their lives. They're like, I want to do this for the next 20 years. And it's like, I think we really shouldn't plan beyond, you know, two to five years. And if you can really focus on just that, that increment, and then realize that the only constant in life is change. It's just a different frame of reference for business. A lot of people just try to build too big of businesses or they think it's going to last forever or they just, you know, and it's one of those things where, you know, if you, you got to create something that has a lot of momentum and then if someone sees that momentum, you know, you, you, you can always sell something growing, very, very difficult to sell something that's declining. Um, you know, it's just human, human nature. So I see a lot of people that just often hold on too long. And so for me, I'm in that, like, let's go fast. Let's create this rocket ship. Let's create this inflection curve and then see if anyone's, you know, interested in it. And then now having sold, you know, a website, I know what, what you know, I talked to 22 potential acquirers of millennial money. So I learned just how they valued it. Just the idea of like valuations within that space are just wild, just like websites are valued in ways that I would never have expected. And so it's, it's, it's determining, you know, a lot of how, how I build it and how I create it to try to maximize that value over a defined, you know, defined period of time. I'm also doing it to the, for the, you know, just the challenge. And it's also like another investment, you know, I just take a certain part of my net worth now and, you know, I'm, I'm investing in and creating something that I know has a, a high multiple potential return, but, you know, theoretically it's kind of the riskiest investment that I have, but yeah, it's a lot, I'm just having a lot of fun. That's awesome. It sounds like you really love it. Your passion shines through. I have two questions for you on that one. One is I really admire your ability to sort of spot trends. How do you t- yeah. like recognize that something hasn't, isn't over yet? Cause sometimes by the time you notice it, like GameStop was such a weird example. We were in that thing and we saw it first, but when you haven't recognized it, other people think you're crazy. And then when it's blowing up, it's too late to get in. So how do you check out those trends and know you're onto something? I've talked a little bit with Vicky about this. I think it's really important to like Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett talk about it as sort of, you know, what's your circle of competence, you know? And I, and I, I think a lot of it comes down to what do you feel like you're good at? What do you feel like you know better than someone else or do better than someone else? Like, you know, I, I, I happen to be like really bad at a lot of things in life. And I've recognized that, you know, quite early, uh, you know, so I, I recognized sort of the limits of what I could do. But then, you know, through that, I realized that I was a couple, you know, I was good at a couple things. And so this goes back to the spotting trends. You're only going to be able to spot a trend in something that you already know a fair amount about or care about. You know what I mean? It's not like, 
I'm going to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh yeah, the derivatives market in South Korea, you know, it's like, it's like, I'm not going to see that. Right. Cause I'm not paying attention to it. But for me, you know, now I know an immense amount about, you know, personal finance websites and what people are searching for on Google. Cause I analyze so much data. So I kind of, I'm naturally curious about that. And so it makes it easier to see things because I'm spending an immense amount of time with the data or with the information. You know, there's also some things in my life that I was like, maybe even too early on, like I was really into juicing uh, and had a Vitamix blender when the only way I could get a Vitamix blender was to get my uncle who has a restaurant to get me one through a restaurant supply company. It was before they even had Vitamixes, you know, so I was kind of early on that trend. And it's maybe it's because I'm just an older millennial. You know, I just feel like some of the things that I'm into, people are going to be into a, a little bit later. And that's, that's proven true. I mean, like with millennial money, no one was talking about millennials and money when I launched that site. And all of a sudden, everyone started talking about it, you know, and I was kind of like, well, you know, I, I you know, my friends had these questions. And so I think other people are going to have these questions, you know, too, especially at a time when they were like, you know, millennials are making less than their parents and they're in debt and they have to move home. And so I was like, you know, I think there's going to be more people like this. And so I'm going to share what I know, but yeah, you can't really predict trends unless you're, and uh, gosh, with stocks or any individual investing, like market trends are just more impossible than anything else. Like, and in fact, like some of the individual stocks that I held when, when they, when they started getting, you know, picked up in, in wall street bets, I actually sold them. Like I was a big fan of rocket mortgage and had a decent sized position. And the minute that I saw it start trending, I was like, I'm getting out of this thing. Cause I didn't want to, you know, ride the wave and just get caught uh, in this, in this whole speculation, you know, you're just going to see that increasingly in investing generally, I think in investing, the bigger question is, you know, what impact is the environment going to have you know, uh, and climate change on, on the market more than the retail uh, investor. Um, you know, th- those are kind of big questions. Where it's like, how do you actually insulate your investments in your portfolio for an increasingly sort of un- un- uncertain climate future? You know, I think that's pretty easy to see, you know, now five, 10, 20 years out that, you know, any intelligent person should should pay attention to. But in terms of business, that's where it's really hard because like, you know, I wrote my book two years before it came out because that's how long the publishing cycle works. And so you're trying to like estimate, you know, when this thing will be in, in popular culture and, and, and meet it at that right moment. Publishers are really good at figuring that out. You know, that's why people who get book deals now are writing about topics that we're going to care about in two years. I mean, that's just the, the publishers are really good at figuring that out. And, and you know, you can you can kind of try to do that in, in your own life. But in business, you know, it just comes down to research. If someone else, if you have an idea, someone else probably already has that idea. So search, search around and see what someone else is doing. Um, and then you just have to figure out what you can do differently. You also have to think about and try to figure out how successful they are. Cause you know, you can often find someone who's already done something, but if they haven't had any success uh, and they've done a decent job at it, you know, there, there's probably not a market for it. So it's like, you know, very few of us are going to be able to like, you know, create something that doesn't exist, you know, like the iPad or something where like Steve Jobs, like people don't know they need it, but they need it. So I th- I think uh, in lieu of that, just figuring out, yeah, just stay close to the things you love and pay attention 
and then figure out how you want to participate in it, but do it intentionally. You know, you should always do, you know, a fair amount of research uh, up front before you create anything. And if you can't figure out what you can do differently or actually assess your ability within that space uh, pretty quickly, you know, you might want to move on to something else. And that, what I mean by that is like, I thought I was a terrible writer. I thought, like, I knew I had something to say about my journey that was unique, you know, and, and, and wanted to try to say it differently. But what helped is like figuring out a plan, a strategy, executing that strategy, and then getting feedback from people. Because people tell you pretty quickly whether, you know, either they show up and comment and send you emails or they don't. And so if, if you're, if you're fine, you're able to find those people where what you're doing resonates. I mean, you really don't need that many customers uh, or that many fans and anything that you do to be successful. It's just, there's a lot, a lot of noise out there and trying to figure out, you know, how to cut through that. It's where the juice is, you know, that's where the, that's where the potential is. Um, I don't know if I'll be as good at doing it. The older I get, you know, it feels something like even being 36, you know, I'm obviously not able to pay attention as closely, you know, to things like, you know, TikTok's a, just a perfect example where I realize, like immediately once, once it started, you know, coming out like even a year and a half ago I was evaluating you know like what I do I even want to participate in this you know I decided not to very quickly because for me I realized there were certain limitations that I just wasn't going to be not that I couldn't necessarily be successful in that platform but that I just didn't want to participate given the amount of time and the potential sort of ROI of it the same thing with Twitter and Twitter is really interesting because a lot of people spend an immense amount of time in their life on Twitter for example and I actually quantified, like, if I spend X amount of time over the next five years, what's going to be the ROI of me actually participating in Twitter beyond just, like, liking when someone mentions me or, like, retweeting a mention as opposed to, you know, actually tweeting. And I figured out that the ROI, you know, in my life and in my business was was extremely low. Uh, the potential of it was extremely low. So I decided not to participate uh, generally in a lot of social media. And that worked out extremely well for me. That's really interesting. I'm right there with you in terms of like, is the juice worth the squeeze if you're a solopreneur doing the kind of stuff we're doing? For Millennial Money, how long did it take you to make your first dollar? Did you ever support yourself on it as like a full-time situation or did you always have other businesses going at the same time? No, I mean, I by the time that it actually started making money, I was already financially independent and living off of my investments. So not not like in the traditional sense of like taking... I never took a paycheck or anything. Um, what I would do was take basically the way the system works is once it started really growing, the money that it made obviously went into the business account and then it would go from there to an investment account. And then my investment accounts, obviously, you know, I have them set up in a way that fund my life, you know, so it was kind of like hopped. It didn't actually pay, uh, you know, I didn't have a paycheck or do anything like that. So no, it never supported me in that way. But to answer your first question about when did I make my first dollar, it was probably a year, a little over a year uh, after I started it. You know, it's one of those things where I would create, you know, I've never been very consistent in terms of, you know, this is going to launch on every Tuesday or every Thursday. You know, that's sort of one of my own limitations that actually ended up benefiting me uh, as, as the site grew, because there's sort of a scarcity component where people would wait for the email or the podcast or the newsletter, you know, or the new post. So actually doing them less sort of rigidly, people, 
you know, came back or they paid attention in a different way, as opposed to, I think a lot of people overcreate content where it's just like, they're, you're drowning them three times a week, or, you know, you're just putting out there whenever you have a single thought. And it's like, eh, you know, if, if you give people a lot more content, you give them a lot more ways to judge you. And you give them a lot more ways to say, I don't like that. And so if you kind of stay within your circle of competence and create the things that, you know, you think we're going to be good and know we're going to be good, they give you a higher chance ultimately of success. So, you know, when I started the blog, I wrote a lot and then I took three months off and then I wrote a lot more and then I dove into it. And once I started getting reader comments, that motivated me even further, but I didn't start millennial money to make money. That's not why I started it, which, you know, looking back is, is somewhat naive but also I appreciate kind of the purity of my mission. I already had enough money. I was just so pumped that I'd become a millionaire and that I'd done all this stuff that I wanted to share with people. It was, it was that simple. And I didn't realize, you know, like naively that, uh, you know, I'd picked, you know, one of the most profitable niches to create content in. And then as I started doing it, you know, people reached out and they're like, oh, you know, we'll pay you for this or will you do that? Or, and it was like, whoa, that's a lot more money but thankfully you know as i was gathering that type of information um, because i didn't have to take the money it allowed me to make some selective choices uh just about you know where where i spent my time you know for example you know even around things like creating courses and you know i had one course that i launched for four days and it was immensely profitable and uh, an immensely profitable successful launch but just keeping up with the customer service and the student management completely drowned me in a way that I was like, you know, this is not something that I want to scale, even though it could be profitable, because it's going to take too much of my personal time and just create a mental load on me. Whereas building the site to maximize affiliate revenue, where it's like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you've already made, you know, $2,500 just from affiliate clicks and you don't have to do anything. You know, that was, <laughs> that was more, more of my speed, but I didn't even know that was possible until I started meeting some other people. Like you meet some bloggers and you learn that they, they're making, you know, a hundred thousand or $200,000 a month. And you're like, wait, what? There's some of these subtle shifts that I learned as I just got deeper and deeper, you know, into, into that world. And then, you know, I had to, at some point make the decision to more actively scale it into something I wanted to sell. And the only way that I did that was, you know, I had some friends that sold their websites and just saw how much money they had gotten. And, you know, at one point I was talking to my wife about this and she just kind of laughed and looked at me and she's just like, you know, why don't you take your own advice? Like, why don't you grow this and build this and sell this? And I was like, you know, okay. And so I decided to actually focus it, but I did it for a limited time. You know, I, I always give myself very, very limited time frames to do things just because A, it keeps me focused and B, I know that the opportunity is, is really kind of limited. I never plan anything, you know, beyond like a year or two. It just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work for me at all. I think that often makes people kind of complacent, but you know, everyone's different. So that's just, that's just kind of what works for me. That is really smart, actually, because I was wondering how you kept your motivation to build upon that. How do you know when to pull, pull the plug? Have you had anything in like business fails that you just were like, this isn't worth the The juice isn't worth the squeeze anymore? Yeah, I mean, so in my early 20s, I launched or tried to launch like a number of different apps and 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 things that just, you know, I didn't have the technical skill or capability. I didn't have the right people around me. You know, I learned some of those lessons pretty early on, just like 
realizing the limits of what I could do and what I was good at. You know, once I realized I was a pretty good marketer and a pretty good writer and pretty good communicator, I was like, you know, I'm going to double down and, and, and good at, you know, with brands. I was like, you know, I'm going to double down on these things that I'm good at and kind of just not try to do the things that I'm not, not good at. So that goes back to, once again, the sort of circle of competence when you realize the limits of your life, you know, you, you, you try to do less. And I see this all the time with people that reach out to me. They're like, you know, I want to do what you did, or my friend is a successful entrepreneur. And it's like, you know, I could give them a list of like 20 things. That's like, if you're not willing to do this, 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 and this, this, and this, or you don't care about this, 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 and this, like, don't even start it or don't even try. It's like, you know, not everyone can launch a new app or wants to, or has the, you know, the technical capability. So the more you realize what you're kind of good at, often the easier life becomes and the less stressful it becomes. And so for me, I was like, okay, you're good at like these five things. How do you set up your life to focus and do these things in in a way that, you know, you know, you can get enjoyment out of and continue to learn and continue to grow. You know, I'm kind of an introvert, which is, you know, something where I just enjoy just like investing. I enjoy looking at keyword data and analyzing different volumes and trends and search patterns and intent patterns. It's something I'm really fascinated by how much you can learn just studying how people search. I mean, that's something that, you know, has, has helped me immensely. It's also helped me just determine by paying attention to, you know, where, where are things going and, and how long are people going to be interested in this particular topic? So in the case of millennial money, I certainly could have kept millennial money and, uh, you know, kept growing it and built, built a team. But one of the things that I've seen over the past several years is that more and more people were just using the name anyway. And so I was spending an immense amount of time, you know, reaching out just very politely. Hey, I own this name. You can't use this in this way. You can't do this, that it just became, you know, that was something where it's like, well, it's great that people are, are, are focusing on this, but, you know, they're entrenching kind of on my territory. So how, how long is this sort of millennial money moat that I've created Because like three years ago, you know, you said that and I was the only person that you thought about. And now you say that and it's like, you know, Graham Stephan and Andre Gique and a couple other guys have a YouTube series named that. And now there's like the Millennial Money Woman and now there's this and now there's this. And, you know, CNBC, you know, I was like on CNBC over 100 times and they saw how successful those spots were. They launched their own Millennial Money video series. You know, I mean, it's one of these things where it's like, okay, so if that's happening, you know, how long can I use this and operate in this space? And then, you know, also on the flip side, uh, you know, I can't disclose the the acquisition numbers, but I calculated that it would take me over 10 years at the website, continuing to grow at the same pace for me to even, you know, come close to making the amount of money that I was being offered for the website. So it was like, time is always more valuable than money. So I was just like, hey, I'm just going to take this money off the table and capitalize on this investment and this time. And also things have natural growth cycles in my life. For some reason, like, you know, every five years, it's just a five-year timeline. Like it took me a little over five years to become financially independent. I had had millennial money. You know, I sold it shortly after its fifth birthday. Things just naturally kind of run in five-year cycles. So for me, you know, it wasn't, wasn't very hard to, to sell it and, and kind of move on. You know, I was ready to, to kind of shed that skin and, and, and just do something different. And so I think, how do you know when to let go? You know, you just, I think often in life, we hold on too tightly to things, no matter what it is. 
And so that was just one example, you know, where I, I knew that I, I'd held on to it long enough. Absolutely. That makes sense. What were your primary revenue sources for Millennial Money? Was it sponsorships, affiliates, or, or all of the above? Yeah, these are great questions. You know, I've like, no, no one's like ever asked me this. Everyone always wants to talk about personal finance. Yeah. So I made money about 20 different ways on millennial money, maybe more than that, you know, over, over the five year period, you know, er, early on it's, it's simple things like sponsored posts, you know, where there was some brand alignment. One of the things I never did was, you know, basically sell a guest post, you know, or sell a link insertion, you know, like someone, you know, paying money to put a link in or putting a guest post on. I never did that. I knew that was bad for SEO for, you know, the potential of the website early on. So I, I wasn't going to do that. I see a lot of new creators uh, that do that. And then they just ruin their chances of ever ranking for anything because they've sold all these links on their website. Uh, so early on, but it was something as simple as like, money brands and, you know, tend to have a lot of money. And so they want to get in front of, you know, certain content creators. And for me, the the strategy with millennial money was I want to, as I mentioned, sort of take like the amateur blogger, you know, be really open, tell my story, but I want to look like the big guys and be really shiny. And so I was like, how can I be extremely vulnerable, but have something that any finance brand, any CMO would feel comfortable working with. And so relatively early on, you know, I got companies and banks that reached out and they're like, we want to get in front of millennials, you know, so we want to sponsor a post or we want to sponsor your newsletter. And so that's probably 50% 50% of the revenue, you know, early on. Um, and then that started leading to, as I got more mentions in the media, you know, like I was like the first person, the first side hustler ever profiled on CNBC, like really didn't even exist. Like, you know, like I was like, and so like my story blew up and then they, it created this whole entire model for CNBC to profile people, you know, who'd done things like I had done. And, you know, I feel super flattered that that, that ended up happening. They were kind of like, whoa, like people want to pay attention to these types of stories. But what that did is it started building my personal brand. And so there was Millennial Money and then there's Grant Sabatier. And they were pretty closely tied at the beginning. But the more that my personal brand grew, one of the things I noticed in the Google search data for my name, and they were searching for Millennial Money. And so it was like, oh, wow. Okay. So this is a different scenario. And I didn't start any of this to be a personal brand at all. In fact, when I first launched Millennial Money, I didn't even put my name on it, you know, for the first like four or five months or my full name, you know, it was was one of these things like I never set out to be like a money, you know, expert or personality. And so that made me really uncomfortable at first, but then I realized, you know, A, this is something that I need to embrace as, as part of the journey. And, you know, it's something that in terms of getting my message out, you know, people connect with people. And so that was one of the things people connected with me in a different way than I had expected. And then I started realizing that was a really big responsibility. And then, you know, through that, I started getting, you know, brand partnership opportunities. And that's where the money can really grow. You know, you'll get like two to $5,000 for a sponsored post, but doing a brand partnership, then it's like the brand will pay you $50,000 for one, you know, podcast appearance and something. And you're, I mean, it's just like, you make like 50 grand for like, you know, 10 hours of your time or something. It's like ridiculous. And so I started doing some more of those things where there was alignment, but that, you know, when it worked, it worked really well, 
But, uh, you know, as you work with these big banks, they have legal departments, contract departments, and things had to go back through legal. I remember writing one post for a big financial brand and it was like, they're paying me like 12 grand just to write one blog post, which is like, that's incredible, right? Anyone would do that. But then it went through legal and came back and they changed all this stuff. Then I had to change it again. And all of a sudden, you know, you're 40 hours into, you know, a $12,000 assignment, which is still a great, you know, you know, that's like $300 an hour, but it's not, you know, it still takes a lot of time and it's a pain. And so that was where I had gotten to in my life where I was like, oh, if I'm not going to be able to make 500 to $1,000 an hour, you know, doing these, you know, brand partnerships, I'm not even going to do them. So I, I learned a lot about that. And then, you know, started uh, down the affiliate track, which, you know, recommending, you know, different products and companies that I'd used. And all of this is corresponding, you know, I ended up getting the book deal with Penguin, uh, which was quite lucrative. And that was something I was like, oh, wow, this is an entirely new level and all the translation rights and the licensing rights and all that stuff. But that correspondingly, when the book did well and increased my Google Eat, and so the website started ranking for things that I never thought I would rank for in, you know, niches that, you know, there are affiliates uh, that can be, you know, quite, quite profitable. And then, so I started adding, you know, the affiliate links and optimizing posts and scaling the post and using, using my Google eat to, you know, which is expertise, authority, and trust. So Google just looks at how trustworthy you are on a particular topic. And because I was being mentioned all these places and talked about all these places and often talked about in a positive way, you know, that gave me a lot of trust in Google's eyes. And so I started creating content that could rank and monetize. And then, you know, affiliate is where you can really, really scale. Um, and so once I started doing the affiliate, uh, you know, I started doing fewer and fewer brand partnerships. And then that had, you know, just the the immense amount of scale. And then I was able to go from like, you know, $10,000 a month in revenue on the website to six figures, you know, in less than, less than 12 months. And, um, you know, was able to scale, scale from there. So it went, it went pretty quickly once, once I was focused on that and my team was focused on that. Wow. Fascinating. You just have reached like the peak of every mountain I've ever seeked to climb. It's really, really cool talking to you. So I love that. I, I guess that does sort of lead to the part two of that one question I asked in terms of when you're funding your own website and business, how much time and capital do you give yourself until you reach profitability? Cause it sounds intense to fund with your own money was is that something you think about or is it like unlimited and, and you know you're going to get to where you're going to go well it's definitely not unlimited and it's definitely I definitely don't know that I'm going to get where I want to go you know it helps just having the experience of having done this before and so with millennial money for example once things started making a little more money what I did was just you know because I was living off my investments I wanted to reinvest the money that I was making on the brand partnerships back into the website in some way. Like you need to put as much of this money that you're making into content creation in, in a smart way. So you're not going to get taxed on it from an income perspective. You know, so I was just like trying to minimize my income as much as possible by reinvesting that money back into the business, you know, with, within, you know, within reason. And so that got me more comfortable sending those checks to writers and different people that I was working with. And, you know, it's a mental game where you got to get comfortable paying other people. And if it feels weird and bad, then, you know, that's just a sign that you need to evaluate, 
you know, is this, is this a positive ROI? It's a different scenario now where I'm launching, you know, like bank bonus from scratch, you know, I basically had a number in my head. It's like, okay, I'll invest, you know, up to this amount over X period as a percentage of my net worth, you know, viewing it as an investment in that way. It's important to create, you know, as your net worth grows and you have a business, create these sort of mental buckets in your head about your personal money and your business money, because that, that's a hard thing to do early on. They're all wrapped up together and you're like, uh, do I want to take my personal money and invest it in my business in this way? I think a lot of people just naturally invest too much in their business the whole like invest in yourself mantra, I think, get overused and exploited a lot just in terms of people, you know, spend like $20,000 on courses and all this junk, you know, like even now, like SMX, like the search engine land, they have this like annual search marketing conference every year and they have like the advanced conference is going on this week and it's $250 and $250 is, is, is not a lot of money really in my life, but it's still like, I actually debated like, ah, do I want to do this? Do I want to do this? You know? So I still do it, you know, even, even now, like I'm still discerning, but I know even if I could get just one thing of value, it, it'll be worth significantly more than that. So I'm probably naturally more conservative than, than most people, but especially when you're first starting out, you got, and, and you just, got away the, the, the cost benefit. And as you get more confidence, I know, you know, how profitable websites like the one that I'm launching now can be. Uh, and I know it just takes a lot of time, you know, to build something from scratch. And so I'm constantly looking for those indicators, momentum indicators, you know, is the website starting to show up in Google? Is the traffic growing? Are more people reaching out to us? And then, you know, how is my team feeling? And if I, the better that I can keep my pulse on that, the easier it is to justify, you know, the investment. And that changes, you know, week to week based on how I'm feeling. I mean, I, I'm, I'm human. It's like, even though I've done this before, you know, I certainly have doubts and it's like, gosh, do I want to be in this super competitive niche? Do I even want to be doing this? Like, I don't have to do this. I don't need the money. I don't, you know, and, and, but then the days when I'm really enjoying it, you know, it's, it's very, you know, it, it, it speaks for itself and it's, a, it's just a lot of fun. So that's just something you got to figure out. I do think that far too many people, I see this on social media where it's like, I hired a PA and, you know, I hired this other person and now I have eight people in my business. You know, you see that a lot. And, and, and for me, I mean, I was running a multi-million dollar, you know, website every year, you know, and I, I had five people and I didn't, I've never had a personal assistant, you know what I mean? So it's one of those things that's like, I've tried them out. Like I've, I've, I've tried to, to work with them, but for me, it's just like, if you, if you need a PA and you're outsourcing at that granular of a level, you know, you have to have the revenue kind of to, to justify it or just recognize that it's just a quality of life investment. But for me, you know, I just, I, I could never get to the point where we're having a PA kind of made sense. I've thought that it would make me sort of complacent and that I needed to figure out a way to manage my my own life in a way that that worked for me so I often think that people hire too, too quickly um, or they just hire their friends I've made that mistake one person I work with has been my long like was a friend before I started working with them now they're all my friends but you know, I think a lot of people hire their friends too quickly and I think a lot of people just hire too quickly they get really excited about that and then they get caught up in it and or they have nice office space or they just you know it's just that's kind of the, you know, the do or die determinant of success is how you use that money that you make early on. And so, you know, 
try to spend it as, as, as conservatively as possible. That's reassuring to hear because I'm actually really anxious about putting money into my business and hiring. I typically outsource overseas. Do you do that or do you hire locally? So it's a mixture of both. Uh, when I was building websites, I found a really amazing uh, set of developers in Bangladesh. And so uh, we formed a good relationship and I worked with them for a long time doing a lot of things. My writers, yeah, are spread across three different countries. They're all, you know, native first English language speakers. Um, but I didn't go internationally for the cost. I went internationally for the attitude and what I mean by that is there's like a level of engagement that I found working with people outside the United States, like a lack of, you know, sort of entitlement that, that, that I just have appreciated. There's just a lot, especially, you know, there's just a lot of prima donnas and a lot of people that, you know, if you're great, then, you know, I'm going to pay you the money. And, you know, if you're great, I'm going to want to work with you, but that's not dependent upon you being in the U.S. or even outside the U.S. I just find a lot of people, when you're paying someone for something, I've noticed in just having employees over the years, often people are just going to do as little as possible. It's just like the natural sort of <laughs> employee mindset, which is fine. I mean, that's like, you know, that's that's completely understandable. I get that, you know, I was an employee once too. But finding really good people is just really, really hard. And if you find people that actually care about what you're building and they want to learn and they want to grow and they want to, you know, they believe in the mission and they just believe in what you're doing, uh, you know, I call them believers in the book, you know, it just makes it so much easier to to work with them because you don't always have to like resell yourself or yeah, people can feel it, you know, they can feel if you care, and, you know, if you're a good person to work with and a good person to work for. So yeah, I mean, that's a, t- that's just a tough choice. I think, I think it's also important just to understand the potential that your business has and how quickly you can recoup that investment. And, you know, like in what you're doing, like podcast sponsorships are going gangbusters now, but I think that that is just getting, you know, a lot more competitive and, you know, it's just, they're tougher to manage and, you know, but something like outsourcing your podcast editing, you know, that seems like a no brainer and some of that sort of stuff, but you have to, if you have a particular business model that you're executing where you know exactly what someone could do, like obviously like the people that have courses, you know, having a customer service person or having someone who follows up on someone within your funnel, you know, all that stuff, you know, make, makes a lot of sense. But once again, then you've got to manage them and you've got how, you know, are you, I, I, I really, 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 really hate paying per hour for anything. I always try to pay per project. And so that's just naturally, I've, I've carried that through and everything that I've done. I'd rather overpay for something, but know how much it's going to cost me than pay per hour and have to deal with that whole, ah, they're really doing that much or is it really, uh, you know, so I, I hardly ever pay per hour for anything. That is so wise. I'm definitely on the same page as you on that one. So I really want to dive into your uh, content strategy tech stack because I'm a nerd about that stuff. It sounds like you are as well. But I also want to ask, you touched upon being thrust into the spotlight as a millionaire and um, I I can relate and the responsibility. And I know you've been really open and honest about your net worth, which I really admire. What was that process like? Why did you make that decision? And was there more pros or cons that came out of that? Yeah, these are are big questions. So early on, when I first started the, the blog, I knew that no one would take me seriously or no one would pay attention if I wasn't open about my finances. And so obviously my story was built around that I'd became a millionaire at 30, that I'd reached financial independence at 30. I knew that I had to share 
everything that I had done, including the individual investments or, you know, us people weren't going to pay attention. And there was a fair amount early on when, you know, companies were doing interviews of me, you know, I had to, you know, get, get online and open up, you know, on a screen share, my investment accounts, pretty uh, jarring to, to say the least, but I knew that I, that I had to be open, open about that. Anticipating the reaction uh, was something that I really kind of under anticipated. So obviously you get a fair amount of like, you know, spoiled white kid guy, this, this, and it's like, well, you know, I actually grew up with very little money and here's where I grew up and Hey, here are my parents on my podcast and here, you know, here's who they are and here's where I came from. And here's, you know, so that opened up a whole other can of worms. Um, But yeah, I certainly, you know, had advantages that others didn't have. I went to an elite school. I got scholarships. I got, you know, obviously, you know, my story is, is my story. So there was a fair amount of that. There was also just a fair amount of, you know, with, with anything there's sort of in the media, it's just the selection bias of the fact that my story, you know, rose to that level. You know, there's a lot of people, it's just, you know, it's an outlier kind of story, or at least it was at that time. Now it's certainly more popular, but it was like, you know, a lot of people being like, I'm never going to be able to do this and, you know, blah, blah. And then also a lot of people who were like, wow, like I want to do that. And this is one of the wild things because, you know, I, like now I don't own my, you know, millennial money email, but when I had it, you know, I was around the time I was writing the book, I had over 35,000 emails from blog readers or people who heard me on a podcast, just some form of a thank you email. I put them all in a Gmail folder. I never got to read all of them. I've exported them and saved them, you know, to read through when I've gotten older, but, you know, I'd read through some of them and read through them when I was writing the book to get motivation and to look at some of the questions people asked me. And one of the things I noticed is that, you know, a majority of the emails, they weren't, thanks for teaching me how to invest or how to start a side hustle or how to do anything. It was, thanks for inspiring me. Thanks for giving me hope. Thanks for helping me believe in myself that this is possible. Thanks for showing me a different way to live. Thanks for, you know, where they were these, it's sort of like the, the inspiration but, you know, I wasn't in the money business. I was in like the inspiration business. And that was something that was a huge mindset shift for me where it's like, okay, like, what am I actually doing here? And how can I do this with the most integrity and with the most amount of love? Like I'm naturally a, um, you know, I don't get angry. I get angry like twice a year. I'm naturally kind of a tense, but I'm, I'm, I'm like a loving, kind, compassionate person. That's just kind of my nature. And so naturally the, the, the better my voice got around sharing my story, the more people felt me in it. You know, I like to, like, whenever you write something, even a book that's just published, you know, it's alive, you know, and it's, it's alive. It's brief. It's like a thing that exists uh, in the interaction, the space between two people. And one of the things I just couldn't have estimated is just the impact I would have on people's lives. Like, you know, we had to shut down my book tour halfway through because too many people were showing up, you know, like just so many people crying, hugging me, like, like just, it was so intense. Like, I was like, like, I thought I was just writing about money, but it's like, you know, you help people see the world in a different way. It forms that relationship, that connection. And that, that continues to exist to this day. Like someone will run into me on the street 
and and just you know pour their heart out to me or just give me a hug you know they just you know like someone's like you're real you know like people like can't like it's so it's this visceral reaction where it's like of course i have that you know i have people like that in my own life that inspired me like if i ran into them i would have the same same reaction but to be that person for somebody created yeah it's extremely humbling and it's 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 something that like nothing in life prepares you for and but with that comes the the added responsibility and 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 you know consequence of of getting people who lay too much on you or expect too much out of you or show up, you know, at your parents' house or show up in places and invade your life in a way that, you know, is kind of scary sometimes. I realized very quickly there's limits to how big I want Grant to get. And, you know, I've like, you know, hung out with Tony Robbins and Dave Bach and all these big people. And they're just like, keep writing and keep growing and keep, you know, they've got such a different generational ethos where for me, it's like, I've already accomplished all the goals that I've had around this and this project that it's enough for me. You know, it's like, I, I like just getting more popular, expanding this thing that the cost benefit for the quality of my life uh, is actually, you know, I think it will make my life harder. You know, I don't really see the upside in it beyond just getting this message out there, but now the message is out there and people can read the book or now there's so many other creators creating things that either I've influenced or they're just, you know, the money space is so much more uh, alive and, and, and beautiful than it was when I started this. So that's like all I can ask for. You know, the message continues to spread and live on, but the transparency thing, like I also decided to never share my net worth beyond that day in 2015. So everything really ends once I reach financial independence. So I have every, all the investments I had and what I invested in had it, but I've never shared my net worth publicly since then. You know, that was one of the things that, that I made the plan to, to not do. Mostly, you know, from sort of a personal security standpoint and also because, you know, it's not relevant to the story anymore. I, I really kind of left it all on the floor. That's where like even think about the next book I want to write. It's not going to be a money book because I've already written the money book. I've already said that. I think a lot of people just spend, you know, you see these personalities, they just spend their whole life saying the same thing. I don't even really do podcast interviews. This is the first one I've accepted just because you sent such a nice email. I've done like, you know, four this year or something. When I did, I think I did like over 200 last year. That honestly, you are making my week. Thank you for saying that. Um, Yes, huge fan, but I'll never forget when I was listening to you the first time on the mad scientist by the pool in the trenches of my day job, just like slowly dying inside. And yeah, you definitely delivered inspiration. And then some, and I'd been following a lot of money personalities for a while and no one had like presented things in the way you had. So that was really inspiring. And financial freedom is the book that I recommend to everybody. You know, I just want to transfer that information into everybody's brain. I buy it for all my friends. Um, It's a really, really great book. I recommend. Yeah. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah. Do you have any, like, how did you get published? Did they reach out to you or did you, were you seeking to get published at the time? No, no, I wasn't seeking to get published. I mean, I knew, you know, like anyone, I kind of always wanted to to write a book and enjoyed writing. Once I had gotten the blog, you know, I'd written about 150,000 words on the blog. So I'd shared a lot. uh, And I felt like I was becoming a better writer and my story was getting out there. But I kept getting these emails that were, you know, either how did you actually do this? And so I had a, it was like a 13,000 word blog post that I had written, but people were still like, well, how'd you do that? Or how'd you do this? 
you know, and so the blog post itself wasn't long enough. And then other people would just reach out and they'd be like, well, you know, that's cool that you did this. And I kind of see it, but you know, how can I do this in my own life? So I kept getting those questions over and over, and, you know, and I try to write back to people and then I started getting too many emails. I couldn't write back. And then Vicky actually gave me the advice. She's like, just don't write back, you know, unless something kind of inspires you because you need to save your time. You know, it's kind of like impact more people by being kind of less, less in the trenches. So then I just, I couldn't keep up with all the messages, you know, at, at the peak, I was probably getting, you know, four or 500 a day across all the platforms. It's just like un- in all these languages and like, even now, I mean, even now, you know, I still get, you know, maybe a hundred a day, 70 to a hundred a day, every single day in all these languages all over the world. And so I can't obviously keep up with all of that. So I had to create enough space for that. You know, obviously I'd read over 300 personal finance books on my journey. I love them. Uh, I don't read very many anymore, uh, but, you know, I read a couple, couple here and there. And I was so impacted by some books, but I felt like, you know, I uh, wanted to share my story and I felt like I could create a framework based on my own life that others could follow and just cut out the fluff. You know, I hated those books. You read them, spend like, you know, five hours of your life and you get like one thing from it. So I was like, you know, if I can write a book, I'm going to like leave it all on the floor and I'm going to put every single thing that I wish, you know, I I would have known until, you know, a publisher tells me to stop. But, you know, it was just a nice confluence of people wanting this. And then once, you know, I did a ton of media, I'd already done a hundred interviews and then I got invited to be on here and now on NPR with Robin Young. And that was like the floodgate like that more than the post and the New York times NPR, like maybe every book agent in the world listens to NPR or something because, you know, after that, like 70 agents reached out to me and, you know, it, it moved so quickly from being on NPR to getting a book deal with Penguin Random House. It was like six weeks and I did have to write a book proposal and do that, but it was very clear, um, you know, that there was a lot of interest and, you know, I talked to these publishers and, you know, just, it just moved so fast. The hardest thing for me was, just finding the right, you know, cause there were a number of publishers who were interested finding really kind of the right fit and, and the right editor, you know, that believed in it and saw the vision and, you know, that I could, could grow with. And I'm on the Avery imprint at Penguin Random House, which is like James Clear and the Dalai Lama and Brene Brown. And, you know, I mean, I'm like the, the little guy compared to them. I mean, I'm, I'm the only money writer that they, that they publish, but you know, it's, it's uh you know, they just, they just have a really soulful approach. And so it moved quickly and, you know, there's like a 12 person team that worked on the book with me. It's, it's been immense. Well, I've got to ask, how does your wife feel about the whole financial independence thing? Is she on board? Cause for me and my husband, we're totally into it, but some other couples have not always been aligned immediately on those goals. Has that been, um, great in your relationship or did you have to get her on board? So my wife and I have been together 15 years since, since college. We haven't, Congrats. Been, yeah, we haven't been married that long, uh, but we've been together and it's interesting because she was obviously there for, for, uh, you know, most, most of this journey, but she really could have cared less, which ironically made it easier for me in a lot of ways. And so it's one of those things where, you know, she had her thing and I had my thing and she's also very intense. She's an academic. And so she, she's got her own sort of life and her own path. And so it made it easier for me in some ways, because I didn't have to be accountable 
to anyone. I mean, certainly after I got married, you know, we got married, that changed. Um, but the whole time I was pursuing financial independence, we weren't, we weren't married. And, and we actually, she was living abroad for a little while. So we were only living together for part of that. So it was one of those things, I, it really did surprise her once I accomplished that goal and sort of shared it with her. But, you know, the, the irony of all of this is she's someone who really could kind of care less about money and is kind of naturally a frugal person and, and more focused on social justice and sort of systemic issues. Yeah. I mean, I think she's certainly, I think, grateful, you know, for what I did and, and the options and the opportunities it's, it's created for us, but by no means is wrapped up in it. But, you know, once the book, you know, she, she was pretty surprised more by the growth of the things that I'd created than, than me reaching financial independence. Like she was, you know, at a random party, uh, you know, three years ago with, with a bunch of academics and someone asked, you know, what's your husband do? Uh, and she mentioned that I wrote about money. And then the woman's like, oh, well, what, what does he write? And she's like, oh, he's got this website. And then she's like, you're married to Grant. What? Ah. And, then like, and then like told this, told my wife, like how it impacted her life and her husband and this, and she loved it. You know, like my wife's like, you know, I finally got it. Like, you know, hearing it from someone else and just how much joy you brought you know, to, to their lives. And she, she, she thought that was really cool. And then, you know, people recognize me, you know, some, sometimes when I'm with her and, you know, I've got to stop and I take a picture and she thinks that's really kind of funny. And now obviously like people that know what I do, like her friends, they all ask me, you know, money questions. So it's funny. I try to like not let it take over, you know, conversations when we go to parties and things like that. But no, she's cool. She, uh, when the book came out, she was like amazed that I got the book deal and wrote the book and, you know, once it came out, she actually read it and she, she asked me not to put her in it. You know, I thank her and the acknowledgements and, you know, that I have a partner, but, you know, she asked me not to put, put her in it, but she really didn't factor into like the budgeting or any of that stuff anyway, but was certainly there the whole way. And so I respected that. And, you know, we don't share a last name. And so like, we're, we're quite separated, uh, you know, online, but she, yeah, afterwards she read the book and she's like, I was like, oh, you know, what do you, what do you think? She's like, I learned so much about you you know she's like i know like she knew what i was working on and doing and you know she saw what was happening but she's just like wow you know so i thought that was pretty that was pretty cool but even now yeah she's just she's still the same way that she was and you know we 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 talk about money and uh you know like once a quarter and you know usually it's pretty quick conversation and and that's that's kind of that's and occasionally you know she'll have a question or want me to chat with someone or do a speaking gig for something she's involved in. And I'll do that. But, you know, the irony of this whole thing is I actually spend very little time thinking about money today. I feel like I actually, all of my, you know, I had over 300 personal finance books and I, I boxed them all up and I put them into storage. I don't even have, you know, I have copies of my book and a few of them, but I actually sort of you know stored them away as sort of a, a you know, from another time. Actually, that's like definitely one of the things I wanted to ask you about is how to be retired because I am supposed to be retiring, but obviously you also are still working as well. Right. What was it like? What was it like after you would reach that summit? What do you do now? How did you set yourself up financially so you were ready to sail off into the sunset? Yeah, well, the setting up financially was actually like quite, quite easy in the sense of just, you know, I've saved a lot more money than I need to live on. So, you know, I made sure to have two years of, you know, I still make sure to have two years of cash 
in an account that that I live on. And so I just let the investments keep growing. And then when that dips to a certain level or the market does something where I'm like, oh, you know, I want to harvest some of these gains, you know, I'll take money out and put it back in the cash account. And so that's pr- pretty simple. And then I just, I don't have any bonds. It's all in stock. So I'm a hundred percent in equities and then have the cash, you know, that I live on and, and just let it ride. I also, you know, in terms of the money that I'm investing in the new website, you know, that's all coming from my cash account, you know, as well. And so I make sure to have enough in there to, to, you know, invest in, in projects like that. So the financial part setting up financially was actually like, quite easy. You know, I haven't done any uh, conversion ladders. I haven't done, you know, all of the tax advantaged accounts that I put money in, you know, I don't even touch like those I just let ride for, you know, hopefully when I'm in my like 60s. Um, so all the money is just, you know, in a brokerage account uh, in different investments. And then after I sold millennial money, that was kind of you know, just gravy on the top. And so I added that to, to the pile, you know, from the life perspective, what I do with my time and how I structured that, you know, that was definitely the more, the more difficult work. The hardest thing is of anything is the longer that you're, and this is why it was a little easier in some ways, because I was an entrepreneur and my life looked quite different than some of the friends that I had. But once you reach financial independence and money truly doesn't dictate your life, you feel extremely far from the average sort of everyday American experience, which is really fun at first because you forget what day it is or you're just like, you know, you just start to flow with the wind a little bit, which is fun, you know some days and then other times it can be jarring or you you don't feel grounded. I'm not a big, like, what's your why kind of person. I just, I'm more like, you know, what I want to do today, what I want to work on. Am I passionate about something? I'm pretty good now. If I'm into something, I just dive into it. I play drums in a band. Uh, I'm learning to play the fiddle. You know, I band, we, we rehearse, you know, five to seven hours a week. So I'm always doing that. And, you know, I play golf and, you know, mow the yard. And, you know, I just bought my first house ever. I've only lived in apartments. Now I've got like, you know, I bought a chainsaw and YouTube how to use that. So, you know, I actually live a pretty simple life, but that's exactly what I wanted. You know, it's, it's, it's counter to the, you know, grind all the time type of life. Like I, 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 so I'm having like a very normal kind of experience, but really appreciative of it. Cause I haven't had that before, but that was the harder part is, is, is the further that you get away from the average everyday experience, the harder it is to relate to people in some ways. Like, you know, I forget that my friends have jobs. I forget that my parents are still working. I forget that like work dictates most people's lives. So when you have a lot more time and a lot more space, you just got to like float in it for a while. And so, I mean, that comes and goes, that's like, and some days I want to work on things and some days I don't. So I just, I kind of go at my own pace. And just like I said, I don't plan too far ahead. I, I don't, I, I think that not knowing and kind of the uncertainty at first was really scary and crazy. And now it's the thing that kind of keeps me going. It's kind of the, you know, uh, I think people naturally expand into the space that they occupy. So for me, it's like, there's so much space around me, like literally and figuratively that I'm naturally able to expand into it in a way that like, 
I could never have imagined that I'd be here, you know, 10 years ago. So it's like, I can't even imagine where my life's going to be in 10 years. And so I don't, I don't put the pressure on myself to think about that or figure that out, but that, you know, (laughs) it's its own thing. It's, it's a, it's an, it's its own thing. And also creating something like, you know, I feel, you know, a responsibility to keep supporting this work in a way, but less so. And that's something I also didn't expect because it's kind of like, you know, the book continues to sell well and spread and do well. And with that comes opportunities that I mostly decline because I don't have an interest in building that personal brand, but I do still speak like online to schools for free and, you know, I'll pop into reading groups and stuff like, you know, when I, when I feel inspired to do it, like some college kid reached out to me and he's like, you know, we, we, a hundred people read your book in our entrepreneurship club and we do the, will you do this? And it's like, yeah, you know, cool. That sounds fun. Like I'll do that. You know, at some point, you know, everything just, yeah, has, it has its moment and has its time. And I'm excited for what's yet to come, like building the new site and even that beyond that, you know, I want to write another book and I'm starting to put some of those things together and, you know, it's just, We'll see. Did you ever get in real estate? You said you just bought your first house. Congratulations. Was real estate ever a part of your strategy or did you stay out of it for a reason? Yeah. So I, I, I owned, I've owned property before, but they were apartments. Uh, and, and then I had one rental, but it was always a small portion of the plan. I mean, in hindsight, if I'd known as much, you know, then as I know now about real estate, I probably would have gotten into it more but on the flip side too, when I did have, uh, I just sold the apartment that I owned in Chicago. When I did have a tenant, you know, it creates a level of mental load that I didn't particularly like. And even now in terms of diversification, I've looked at a few small apartment buildings and thought about getting into that, but there's something just so like, yes, great from a diversification play, but personally, just from just a freedom of mind, just being asset light in that sense, uh, you know, and having all of my money out there, you know, in the cloud, you know, making money for me. I don't have to think about it as much. Will I own a 30 unit apartment building at some point in the future? 50, 50. uh, Is it something that I think about? Not much. Um, But like anything, you know, this financial independence movement, the financial freedom, all these paths, it's like a choose your own adventure. And there's a lot of ways to get there. And there's a lot of ways to get there really quickly. And, you know, I've, I have quite a few readers and friends who are like in their mid twenties and they own like six properties and they're already five. And it's like, awesome. You know, I don't, I don't know if I would have done that, but I didn't know enough about it early on to, to even make that choice. I love it. All right. I have two questions I have to ask you or I'll regret it forever. And they're going to be random, weird tactical questions, okay. like the one you've had to deal with all this for this last yeah. hour. Um, okay. So I am a domain hoarder, but yeah. I don't know how to flip the domains. How do you flip a domain? Do I have to transfer it over to GoDaddy from Namecheap? No, I mean, you can, you can, you can sell it anywhere. So you can sign up for GoDaddy auctions. You can sign up for CDO, S-E-D-O, and you can basically just like post your domain for sale. So you can cross list your site, even though it's on Namecheap. And then what happens when it actually sells, you know, you either work with the team that helps broker the deal or just one-on-one with the buyer and just transfer it. You, you can easily move domains from Namecheap to 
whatever registrar, you know, the person who purchases it has. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. There was like some missing part of the puzzle that was driving me nuts. I'm like, I know there's a way to do this, but how? So yeah, yeah. Ideally, I mean, it depends on the domain, but ideally, you know, you've got some page parked on it that says it's for sale. And you've listed it on a number of marketplaces or, you know, you've connected in some domain reselling forums or worked with some domain brokers. I mean, if it's a really, really good domain, you know, working with a broker can make sense because they already have active buyers, you know, out there. But like anything, you know, hopefully they'll continue to appreciate and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens because clearly like the really good ones are appreciating. But I think fewer people now that are creating things are willing to pay a premium, but you know, like anything, I think my view of it's probably too limited because something's driving those, you know, those, those valuations. Definitely. And then for CNBC, I know they offered you to buy millennial money. Is that how you made the connection with the press where they kind of like, because you've really mastered the press, which is so impressive. How was your like foot in the door for that? And how did you game that, that system? Yeah. I mean, one of the crazy things, so I've never done any active press outreach. It's all been yeah, isn't that crazy? I've never, never sent an email to a journalist pitching a story ever. It's all been, you know, responsive. And so one of the things, I mean, media has changed a lot since, since I was first featured, but some of this things still hold, like even just in the past, you know, month and a half, I've been in the Wall Street Journal and on BBC and, uh, you know, in Real Simple, like, so I still you know, do these interviews and we'll have these interviews even now, even though I don't even reach out. And one of the things is like media naturally begets media. And so, you know, if someone's like often the circles are quite small. And so the financial media, they're all following the same people on Twitter. They're all reading the same stuff. And if they see a story or a profile of a person that's intriguing, then they'll, you know, they'll reach out to them and then, they'll try to gauge if it did well or if there's a unique angle. And then, so what happened early on is like people literally wrote the same exact story about me just, you know, in mass. And then what happens too is like a lot of the big publications, they're part of syndication networks. And so the syndication networks then get other places and then people write about you in other languages. And then that, so, so you never just do like, if you do one media, you never just do one interview. It always, it's always like one leads to like, 10 you know and then it'll be quiet for a little while and then someone they'll want to do follow-ups if the story does well and so one of the things I tried to do early on you know you got to have your story down pat and your story has to be you know ideally different than someone else's story so for me it was naturally my story has a sort of clickbaity component to it you know, millionaire by 30, financial independence by 30, millennial millionaire. It had all these different angles that a journalist could write about and get clicks. And early on, I knew that that was a way that I could tell a deeper story. It's like millionaire by 30, but here are the things that I did wrong. But you need to figure out how much is enough. But it's not about the money. You know what I mean? So there's like having, when you're dealing with the media, everyone's saying the same thing. So having, having, you know, a counterintuitive approach to something that they're talking about, they'll pay attention to because no one else is giving them that. Counterintuitive approach, number two, actually being able to recommend titles or, you know, journalists would send me things that they'd written, you know, or they'd even send me ones that like posts that had already been posted, but the title sucked. And I'd be like, oh, we'll change that. 
or change this, or I know that this worked well on this other website. Why don't you change? Instead of saying retired early, say this, you know, and so, oh, put $2.26 in the actual title, you know, like change things around. And so I actually helped them construct the titles quite a bit early on. And that they didn't send it to me before they published it. It'd be after it was published. I'd be like, you know, this is great, but I think, you know, this, this title would work better. Someone said that, you know, this, this worked better on another website. So I was able to control that a little bit. Um, and then when it's successful, they just, you know, they reach out to you to, to do follow-up stories. And ideally they love doing one interview and being able to do three or four stories from it. So that was always something I was able to, to leverage and, and, and take advantage of. And then, yeah, when it does well, or, uh, you know, they'll reach out again. And then finally, the last thing is just pithy comments, you know, so have like, I, you know, I didn't rehearse, but I, I noticed that certain ways that I would say things would get people intrigued. And so naturally I would remember those lines, you know, those lines that always kind of stick with you. Like, you know, I'll say, you know, there's one, I remember saying it, uh, you know, it's like, you know, the, the fr- freedom only matters, you know, if, if, if you take advantage of the freedom you already have, you know, things like this, like certain things that naturally I would say that people would be like, oh, and then I'd be like, okay, I can use that again, or I can, you know, change this. That was something that, that I was able to, to leverage. People, you know, journalists, they're moving quick. They want good stories that get clicks and get readers and get eyeballs. And then they want, you know, just quotes that they can use, you know, really quickly. Um, and if you, they can depend on you for that. Now people reach out to me three years later and they're like, oh, hey, Grant, remember we wrote this? Let's do a follow-up. Or what's happened to you in COVID? Or what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And they know I'm always going to have something to say. So that's just created its own engine. Where now it's like, I can be like, oh, Grant Spatier, you know, they always want to say millennial money, but I can say, you know, CEO bank bonus. And so then they can mention my new site like they did, you know, in the Wall Street Journal two weeks ago. And that was an article on how should you be tipping now post pandemic, you know, which has nothing related. And that's the thing is I was able to talk about financial independence, and fire and retire early and millennials and millennial money and financial freedom. And, you know, like there's a there's a broad swath of things that I could talk about. And then that just that just hums. I love that. That's so smart. Well, you have truly made my month. Thank you. Honestly, this was everything I would hope it'd be and more. My husband's equally excited. Uh, real quick, where can everybody find you if they want to learn more about you and get in touch or, or make connections? Yeah. I mean, check out the book, Financial Freedom uh, on Amazon. If you want to learn a lot about me and a lot about what we talked about, you can follow me at grantsabatier.com which is my personal website. You can sign up for my personal mailing list. I send emails out like every two months. I'm not frequent or regular, but that's kind of the cool stuff that I have going on. And then, yeah, at Millennial Money, still on Twitter, at Millennial Money Com or at Financial Freedom on Instagram. And then, yeah, that's probably the best place. And check out bankbonus.com. That was everything I hoped it would be and more. Grant is just full of so much actionable wisdom and you can tell he really relates and empathizes with his audience. He has been rock bottom and he's shot to the moon and he knows what everything in between is like. I definitely recommend checking out his website, millennialmoney.com. It's a wealth of wisdom and information. Even better if you get a copy of his book, Financial Freedom. If you liked what Grant had to say, please check out the show notes on moneyselfmade.com. 
and all the links are also available on the YouTube video so just down below if you're watching on YouTube please remember to smash that like button smash that subscribe button wherever you happen to be listening thank you so much for being a listener make sure to check out next week's episode because they're just getting better you're gonna love it see you next week